Thank you for tuning in to Strange Studies of Strange Stories. The following podcast is from our original show, the H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast, which ran over 600 episodes from 2009 to 2022, and is exactly the kind of thing you can expect from us here, albeit with an expanded focus on all the best in horror, science fiction, and fantasy. There's a new free episode every month, or subscribe at patreon.com slash media to get new shows every week. Thanks again, and enjoy. hppodcraft.com <laughs> Two boys, who were brothers because they had the same parents, had an uncle in common, too, who had to have his leg taken off. This made their uncle such an object of interest in the boys' eyes that the parents decided they would have to be given a scientific explanation of the affair to put their minds at rest. Uncle had got a hole in his toe, and a lot of animals had crawled in through the hole and right up his leg. These animals were so small that you couldn't even see them. Father called them bacteria, and mother, Basili, so that the elder boy chose to call them Bactilla, and the younger, Batteries. These strange animals crawled up in a red strip up Uncle's leg, so the leg had to be sawn off before they had reached his body, for if they did that, Uncle would die. But now he had an artificial leg and was still alive, and the leg was just as good as a real one. With this explanation, the parents thought their children were content. As a father of two young boys, I'm feeling very confident that this story is not going to disturb or upset me in any way. (laughs) Hey, it all sounds pretty fun so far. A little conga line of wacky bacteria crawling up a leg. Uh Maybe after the leg gets cut off, it it gets tossed in a river and they, (laughs) they float away on it. Learn about friendship. But that's not what this is, is it? No, seriously, this is an upsetting and disturbing story that has violence against children by children in it. Yeah. Normally, I wouldn't read this type of story, but this story does something really interesting. And I told myself, you know what, dude, power through it. Mm. It'll be worth it. And you'll be happy to know I listened to myself and I agree. You agree. Oh, good. That's great. So yeah. somebody learned about friendship and it was you yeah. with yourself. Mm-hmm. Who are you, by the way? I am Chris Lackey. Well, hello, Chris. I'm Chad Pfeiffer. And hello, listeners. This is the HP Lovecraft Literary Podcast at hppodcraft.com and Patreon. We're also soon to rebrand as Strange Studies of Strange Stories. We'll answer to either at this point. This is our free show for May. If you're tuning in for the first time, we do one free show a month and three others for our Patreon subscribers on excellent strange stories in the horror, fantasy, and science fiction genres. We also do a show on listener comments and a bonus episode each month on whatever the hell we want. Mm-hmm. Movies, games, manimal. There are a lot of manimal episodes. <laughs> Subscribe now on patreon.com slash witchhousemedia and get it all. This story is called Child's Play, and it's by the Danish author Vili Sorensen. Not to be confused with the 1988 Chris Sarandon film of the same name. Or any of the sequels. And there are a lot of Child's Play sequels and a TV show, I think, that came out last year. Tom Holland directed that first Child's Play movie from 88. He was also the director of Fright Night prior mm-hmm. to that, one of our favorites. Have you seen it in a, in a while? Uh, no, I haven't seen it in probably 20 years or so. It's pretty good, actually. Huh. I, I watched it recently. It has some good scares in it, some good jokes. It's all shot in freezing Chicago. Mm-hmm. You can tell they did it on location and those actors are genuinely cold, <laughs> but it's not based on any short stories. It's an original screenplay by Holland, a guy named Don Mancini and rewrites by John Lafia. It was Mancini's idea to do a take on the rampant consumerism and marketing towards children in the 80s. If you recall, the Cabbage Patch Kids of and course. My Buddy yeah. and all that stuff. I will say as much as I like the movie, I do still stand by my boast that I'll kick the <laughs> out of any haunted doll. 
I like a scary doll show. I like a trilogy of terror. But if this story were really about that kind of thing, I'd be like, whatever. Yeah. Next. But it is not about that. And it did give me some chills. That said, I did want to give the movie some love because I'm sure at least a few people tuned in (laughs) thinking, oh, boy, I can hear about Chucky and his exploits. This story we're doing today, not a lot of cute quips in it. It's it's quite a different small animal. We got this story from a collection called Fine Frights, Stories That Scared Me, which was put together by author Ramsey Campbell. We discovered this book when doing Thernley Abbey last month, and we've reached out to Mr. Campbell and we'll be talking to him next month about all kinds of strange stories because... That is what we do here. As we mentioned on the bonus episode last month, June will be our last official month as the HP Lovecraft Literary Podcast. Even though we finished up Lovecraft stories 10 years ago, we kept the name going for quite some time. I think having Ramsey Campbell on is an excellent way to wrap up this whole 13-year Lovecraftian journey and and kick off the next 13 or so as Strange Studies of Strange Stories. Fine Frights is not an easy one to find, unfortunately. It's a 1988 anthology what a year for things called child's play. There you go. But if you can find it, it's one of those wicked 80s horror paperbacks with the embossed lettering published by our friends at Tor Horror. Mm-hmm. They were early sponsors of this show, so yeah. they know what's up. The story itself, child's play, is a little tough to find online anywhere. You, you couldn't find it, could you? No. I've heard about it for years, but could never track it down. If anyone does manage to find it in a more readily available anthology, at least, please drop a note in the comments for us and the listeners. I was lucky enough to nab a copy of Fine Frights, and I'd like to read what Mr. Campbell had to say about this story and the author in his short introduction. Mm-hmm. He writes, Billy Sorensen is one of the most respected living Danish writers. Now I have to stop you right there because that is no longer true. I am sad to say that he passed away in 2001 at the age of 72, which is why we are able to cover him on the show. Continuing with the intro, Billy Sorensen was born in 1929 and in 1953, he published his first book of short stories. Since then, he has published essays and biographies such as uh, Seneca, the Humanist at the Court of Nero. That's available in English. In 1950, his first collection appeared in English as Strange Stories. Yeah. I read that some scholars credit this collection as being the start of Danish literary modernism. He published additional collections of stories in 1955 and also 1964. These stories generally explored the absurd and the hidden parts of the human psyche. He was also a literary critic and a philosopher. Yeah. And he's received a lot of awards. He was awarded the Grand Prize at the Danish Academy in 1962, the Nordic Council's Literature Prize in 1974, the Hans Christian Andersen Award in 1983, and the inaugural Swedish Academy Nordic Prize in 1986, among others. That's the Danish EGOT when he got there. <laughs> Ramsey goes on to conclude, the first story, Child's Play, shocked me deeply when I read it, and it disturbs me still. So this story freaked Ramsey Campbell out, a leading author in the horror fiction world for over 50 years. And guess what? He knows what he's talking about because it freaked me out too. Yes. Before we jump in, I just want to say thank you to our reader, Chad Fess, whom we heard at the top, an actor just as talented as one would expect with a name like Chad F. (laughs) He's actually an old school friend of Heather's, and uh, we ran into him somewhat randomly on recent Easter travails across the Midwest. So thank you, Mr. Fest, glad to have you on. Today's episode is an embarrassment of Chad's. That's that's what you call it when more than one Chad is present, an embarrassment. Let's get into child's play. This story starts with these two brothers who are unnamed that become fascinated by their uncle's amputated leg. Their mother explains to them that small creatures got up in there and made his leg go bad, and if the doctors didn't cut it off, then their uncle would have died. 
And that seems like that was it. Case closed. Sounds like this was an agreed upon explanation between the parents. And I think it's pretty good in my estimation. They're trying to kind of get the science in a little bit Mm -hmm. with bacteria while also reassuring the kids that their uncle's just fine. Weirdly, our Uncle Ed actually did have both of his legs amputated later in life. Oh, whoa. I was a kid, but old enough to understand it was for health reasons. But I was also young enough that it sort of made me scared of him a little bit. So I can understand it when Sorensen writes this made their uncle such an object of interest in the boy's eyes. There's an efficiency in that introductory paragraph as well. It gets right to the point, gives us the setup for the whole story, and then we kind of get into the action of it. But what about that opening line? It says, two boys who were brothers because they had the same parents had an uncle in common too who had to have his leg taken off. It just seemed like an odd choice to explain why they were brothers. Mm. If he just written two brothers had an uncle, I think we would understand or assume that they had the same parents. I felt like it was a clever way to say it that got my attention, but also put me as a reader in the place of the child who is in that asking questions phase. Those two are brothers. Why? Because they have the same parents. You as a parent must have gone down this road with your kids when you're explaining simple things. They're asking why about everything. And then, of course, suddenly there are exceptions. Well, with family sometimes, too, that if there are divorces or adopted children or other things that are not typical. Right. You've got to go, well, okay, yeah, that's a little little bit different. We then cut to a younger boy who's running along next to a horse and a cart barefoot, and he really stubs his toe so badly that it's bleeding and he's in a lot of pain. He's howling. As he's running, it says the younger boy, quote, was trying to find out how a horse has four legs and yet still manages to run. We're finding this boy also in that stage of just trying to understand the rules of the world. Uh I run, I have two legs. How is this thing doing it with extra legs? Yeah. That's not running. Is it? He stubs his toes as the two brothers are coming by. Right away, I was like, oh, no. Yeah. Is that where this is going? Sorensen tips it, actually, right away when he says he hopped about on one leg and screwed up his little face that would never get any bigger. It's not going to work out here. Yeah. So these two brothers come to the aid of this boy and explain to him that he needs to see a doctor because he probably has blood poisoning. The younger brother calls the bacteria batteries. And the elder brother corrects him and says, no, no, it's bactilla, which is, of course, wrong as well. Important lesson here, taking medical advice from kids is not the way to go, but still slightly better than the internet. Yeah. People who don't understand things often think they understand them very well. Yeah. Unfortunately. Once you start to get a little bit of knowledge, you get a little bit of, you get a lot of confidence. And Mm -hmm. people are like that on lots of things. It's that transmissibility of information. You know, you watch a television show about some culture and then you start blabbing about it and somebody hears that from you. They didn't hear the source. As far as they know, it was an expert that told them that. And so they repeat whatever things you got Uh wrong, you know. And these parents try to explain infection the way they understand it to the kid. They're not wrong. But these boys then go on to explain it with that transmissibility to this other kid. Hey, look, you've got a hole in your leg now. So little animals are going to climb up in there. So the horse kid doesn't believe them. And he says, you know, I'm not afraid of dying if that's the worst thing that's going to happen. But he's probably saying this because he doesn't know what death means, what it means to die. Not at all. And the kid, he says, well, when he grows up, I want to be a horse. That's my that's my goal because horses are just rad. I get the impression that this kid is pretty young if he's so young that he thinks that he has got the potential to actually change into another life form. But it's relatable. I mean, I think I've related on the show before that I was sitting on an egg oh, right, yeah. when I was little because I thought it might hatch a little version of me. <laughs> And I thought that wasn't wasn't even an experiment. I was pretty sure that was going to happen. Yeah. They're they're trying to reason with the kid. Dying means you can't play anymore. It means you can't eat anymore. Mm. And if that leg doesn't come off now, you're going to die. Yeah. It's nice because at first they say he needs to see a doctor. 
at least. They pitch yeah. a doctor to him, but the kid does not want to see a doctor. Since this kid is doctor adverse, the older brother suggests that they can perform the procedure at his house. So the kid agrees, <sighs> and we find out his name is Peter. It gets out of hand so fast. We can talk about it later, but I don't think they set out that day to saw off a leg. No. This is like the worst kind of meat cute of all time. <laughs> Kids with a saw and this misunderstanding run into a kid who stubs his toe. Horror blooms. Now, you can probably see where the story is going, and it does go there. We learn at this point that the older boy luckily has a saw. Yeah. It says, the two big boys began to feel sorry for him. Never mind, said the eldest. We will do it. We'll take him home and saw off his leg. We can use my fret saw. But we can't do that, the younger says. Of course we can. A thin leg like that's nothing after the tree trunk I sawed up as easy as anything the day before yesterday. Oh, God. Just brought me back to being a kid, though, because my garage was full of my dad's tools. He had tons of stuff. Uh-huh. And all I wanted to do was goof around with those tools. We had fret saws. We had all kinds of saws. Yeah. And I got to know all of them because I would just take them down in the ravine, take branches off of trees, saw anything. Yeah. And sometimes I'd decide I was going to get a bunch of tools together and a bunch of wood and you know, build a tree house in an afternoon or something. <laughs> and I'd abandon it pretty quickly because I had no idea what I was doing. It didn't, I'd try to nail things together to make a structure and it would fall apart. I just yeah. didn't understand. And this reminded me too of when I tried to build my robot, which I think I, I've talked about before on the show. Where <laughs> yeah, I, your robot. <laughs> I had cardboard boxes that I had taped together in the shape of a humanoid. And then mm-hmm. I stuck a bunch of wires in it and it didn't move. And I really, I remember, I so deeply remember the, the confusion, like, huh? What am I doing wrong here? Why is this not working? Because I just was so out of my depth. I so didn't understand how these things work. And that's where these kids are. This was really early episodes of this show. We talked about these things because I remember discussing that my sister and I had built our smile machine, which was, you know, a cardboard box that had yarn attached to bent paper clips that you would insert into both sides of the mouth and pull from either side to make the person (sighs) smile, which thankfully our parents stopped mid demo when they saw what was going on there. Thank God we were a couple of show offs and didn't test it in private. We wanted to have a big Tony Stark like exhibition. (laughs) which meant we got halted. But if that if that hadn't have been that way, you know, I'd be looking like the Joker right now. Whoa. And and that's so played out. So the brothers are excited about doing this operation because they're going to save this kid's life and they're going to get in the newspapers. Extractory, <laughs> read all about it. Two little kids soften another kid's leg and save the day. <laughs> The reassurance they got from their parents about the uncle's artificial leg is uh-huh. not helping either. They were no. like, oh, that leg's fine. It's great. It's better than the one he had before. So that's what they think. Mm-hmm. The boy says, uh, I want to have my leg. I want your leg, too. I'm a horse. <laughs> they say, you know what? We'll let you keep it. And uh-huh. you'll get an artificial leg, too, which is just as good as a real one. And then you'll have three. But we got to hurry up because the bactilla can run very quickly up a little leg like yours. The kid says, can I have my leg to keep? The boy says, of course, you can take it home and play with it. Oh, God. Ramsey Campbell says he was shocked by the story. It's not really the thing that happens. It is shocking mm-hmm. what happens. But it's this stuff, these misunderstandings that are flying around and the way the dialogue is so credibly presented. So the two brothers are very excited to save a life and the young boy is so excited to become a horse, so they get on with it. Luckily, there was no one there when they got home. So they laid Peter ready on the kitchen table and the eldest boy went to look for his fret saw. Peter was babbling away about how fast horses could run and did not suspect anything even when the little boy pulled off his trousers and his brother picked up the saw. But as soon as the teeth of the saw touched his leg, he started kicking wildly and screaming that he wanted to go home. The boys found it quite impossible to make him see reason, 
and there was nothing for it but to tie him down with the clothesline. He had surprising strength, although he was so small, and it was a terribly long time before they managed to tie the rope properly round his body and then round the table legs. But at last he was tied so that he could not move. He still shrieked so hysterically, though, that the elder brother could not make himself heard when he gave orders to the younger, and he had to stuff a handkerchief into the screaming mouth. He got his fingers bitten until they bled, but that did not bother him. He was a plucky boy. Here's the point where one starts to wonder about the boys mm -hmm. and humans in general. This is sort of a nature-nurture discussion that's happening. Right? I mean, yeah. I was thinking, well, maybe they're misinformed, but once the screaming starts, don't you by nature step back, even with this misunderstanding, and think, okay, this is wrong in some way. I should ask an adult. Yeah. But they do think the kid might die. You know, I thought more about it. It's not like adults who have to go through this don't scream and resist. Sure. How many times in a war movie have you seen this exact scene? It's just among adults. Well, the legs got to come off, you know, bite down on this or take a swig of whiskey or whatever. You don't think the surgeon is a monster for doing it. No. This same thing is playing out. I can only speak to my kids, but they're squeamish. Yeah. Anything like this, you know, if a kid started screaming, even if they wanted to help, which that in and of itself is, is another thing that, you know, kids don't really go out of their way to help out other kids. You know, <laughs> they just don't. If you think you'll get in the newspaper, though. Especially to the point of this is kid going nuts and screaming. Yeah. I don't think that they could shut that off, that there is a lack of empathy that's going on there that would, like you said, make them reconsider, like, wait a minute, maybe this isn't such a good idea. We should get a, a grown up and find out what's yeah, going on. Yeah, you would think. They're surprised by the amount of blood, the difficulty in actually cutting this kid's leg. The older brother decides to try and let the younger brother give it a try. It's strange stuff to saw in. You try. And again, we have that lack of experience of the world making things worse because... The young boy never gets to play with the saw, so he's excited about it. Oh. Says, as he was not used to sawing, he did not notice anything strange about it and said, it's fun sawing. Yeah. This is the first thing he saw, so he doesn't know any better. Blood? Blood wigs my kids. I mean, not like really wigs them out, but they get pretty, a little bit of blood is concern time. So again, the, the plausibility of them just being normal kids here is stretched a bit for me. So still unable to get the leg off. The older brother tries again, but there's blood everywhere and they realize that they're going to get in trouble because of this mess. And they just abandon the whole operation. The younger one points out that Peter will die from blood poisoning if they stop now. I kept thinking about my friend, Dan, who used to spend the night at my house all the time, and we'd make orange Julius's in the blender. That was a shop in the mall that made sort of smoothies, and we wanted to make our own, but it was always with this, you know, fruit cocktail and mustard and oh, whatever we could find in the refrigerator. We weren't supposed to be using the blender, so we'd get all of the ingredients in, and then we'd cover the blender with every coat and blanket <laughs> we could find to run it so my parents upstairs wouldn't hear. Of course, the first time we did that, the thing flies off and Orange Julius is all over the jackets. I'm frantically scrubbing my mom's winter coat and Dan's over there taste testing. Mm, this is pretty good, actually. Like, you idiot, I'm going to get killed. Come help me clean this up. There's this glaze of innocence about the whole thing. Yeah. The fact that they're in the middle of this and then they realize, not that they're hurting the boy, but that it's a big mess. Yeah. You know, we got to get this cleared up before mom comes home. The younger says, won't he get blood poisoning if we stop? 
The older says, you don't think I care about that. Father will beat us when he gets home. They're more concerned about themselves in a certain way. It's just like any other childish thing that's gone awry. Really, the barrier to make them stop is just that they're going to get in trouble and that it's not going the way they thought. Yeah. But they've sawed into another boy. The reality of it is so much worse. This is not an Orange Julius. No, it's not. (laughs) That's my takeaway. (laughs) To say the least. The older brother suggests the hole in his leg is big enough to let the infection out. So he's come, he's got some new ideas about how this thing's going <laughs> right. to play. He's making it into a win. Yeah, exactly. So they tell Peter that he can go home now, but he's not moving. I was really chilled by their first impressions, which again are given with Sorensen's excellent writing. He pulled the handkerchief roughly out of Peter's mouth, but the mouth did not shut. The boy lay staring up at the ceiling and did not even trouble to shut his mouth. How silly he looks, the elder brother said contemptuously. You can go home now. Your leg's sawn off enough. Oh, but we'll have to untie him first. Can't he do that himself, the baby? Mm-hmm. They themselves, they're not really understanding what they've done. Mm-hmm. And in fact, there's this little interjection here. It says, he began tugging feverishly at the clothesline, which wrapped itself around them both like a lasso. The older brother used such a bad swear word that his younger brother looked at him in admiration. <laughs> so it made me laugh, you know, right in the middle of this horrific scene, because yeah. it is so impressive when another kid knows a good swear you haven't heard before. But then they do get it. Okay, he's dead. However, because... Because, like you said, the explanation they've gotten, they don't blame themselves. The older says, of course, the Bactilla could be expected to wait while we tied up such an idiot. It was Mm -hmm. because they had to tie him up that the Bactilla got the job done and he died of the blood poisoning. And the younger even says, can he come alive again? So even he doesn't have a good understanding of what of what death is. The older says, of course, he can't come alive again when he's dead of blood poisoning. (laughs) Idiot. The younger boy looked and promptly wetted his trousers. It ran down his leg and dripped into the blood, and he began to cry so his brother should not hear it dripping. So what you you highlighted that bit. What, what made you highlight it? Because I'm of the opinion that these kids are psychopaths in a way. Because mm-hmm. he's not crying because of something horrible that they've killed this other kid. He's crying to cover up something he's embarrassed about, which is wetting his pants. Oh, right. Yeah, he's covering that. Well, why do you think he wet his pants, though? I think because he, he realizes he's in trouble and he's panicking. I don't know. Let's let's wrap it up and okay. then we can discuss this. So the older brother takes charge and says they've got to clean it all up before their mother comes home. He tells the younger to drag the kid outside and make sure nobody sees him do it because they'll think he killed him. And the younger says, hey, it was blood poisoning. But the older one says they won't have the sense to see that. The kid knows better than an adult would know. Yeah. He drags Peter's body outside. When the younger boy comes back, he can see that the place is still a mess and the older brother is starting to freak out. His voice trembled and the younger boy heard with triumph that he was near to crying. Again, these kind of petty things are going on with these kids, even though this horrific thing has happened. The doorbell rings and they both wet their pants. They look outside and it's the police. The older brother wets them this time. And I feel like this is a little Lovecraftian. The thing you just cited where he sees that his older brother's freaked out and he feels a little triumph because of that. It's because his older brother is the aggressor and the influencer and the one Mm -hmm. who kind of pushes him around. In a Lovecraft story, there's the one insane guy and then the unwitting assistant who gets carried along with him who's just weaker willed, like the hound or reanimator. Mm -hmm. I feel like maybe they wet their pants for different reasons. I don't think they're both psychopaths, if that's the right word. I think maybe it's one, you know, the guy, he's like, we'll saw it off ourselves. The older brother is clearly the one (laughs) who's pushing the action here. This phrase struck me. It's the police. What did I tell you? Hissed his big brother. And he suddenly noticed that this was quite a new brother one with a crooked mouth. He's suddenly become a different person in this moment. They ignore the ringing bell and try to keep cleaning. Outside, their mother is just arriving home and she's speaking with the policeman. He explains that they found a body of a boy that was presumably hit by a car. She's terrified that it might be one of hers. So she opens up the door, 
they close the kitchen door and come out mm-hmm. into the foyer and she says oh my god thank god you're alive and she kisses them but then she sees that there's blood all over them but how on earth did you get like this the boys said nothing you're all red has something happened does it hurt the boys did not answer her tell me are you alive was it you who were run over yes mother said the elder boy and began to cry me too said his brother and began to cry as well right over come and let me wash you the mother jerked open the kitchen door and blood welled round her feet and lay caked on the walls but were you run over in here yes mother wept the elder brother both at the same time wept the little boy the policeman appeared suddenly in the doorway he had a fret saw in his hand what's this how should i know said the mother now let me get these two washed she washed them as white as angels and put them to bed as they had feared nevertheless they were in the papers the next day And that's the end of this horrifying story. So unsettling. It's really, really unsettling. And as a father, this is a certain type of horror that I have that you as a parent Mm. will make some terrible error and not teach your children something that they really need to know and that you think is obvious and that they picked up already, but the kid doesn't quite understand it. It's an anxiety that I already have. And this story plays into that. And obviously it takes it to this insane horrific level but there is a real fear that this is exploiting yeah oh my god or that you'll explain it in the wrong way or Mm -hmm. that your intentions don't or even something offhanded that you might say might cause your kid to have a prejudice or oh god yeah an incorrect feeling about the world yeah but there's this other layer to the story that might even be more horrific is that what if your child is a psychopath kids are not as empathic as you would like them to be sometimes i i I know Mm -hmm. i was when i was a kid i was so mean to my brother and there, the, oh, sure. The things you learn as you get older, you become a little bit more empathic. I have passing thoughts. It's like, well, what if my kids don't learn those things? What if they just never get that sense of, of somebody else and that it's important to be re- really kind and, and all the, and that's another anxiety that I have. And that's something that is in this story where these kids don't seem to have that empathy about what's going on with this kid. And I, I know that yeah. there's this idea that they're, that they're trying to do the right thing. But for me, it seems like there is a delight in what they're doing. I know the the kid's sawing the other kid's leg and he's like, sawing is fun. (laughs) He could be experiencing fun while there's a kid screaming and bleeding all over the place. Like, it's just (sighs) impossible for me to accept that as a reality of a normal child. It's it's so hard to say. I think that explaining it by saying that, yeah, these kids have some broken stuff in their heads kind of makes it safer. Oh, yeah. I didn't feel that safety in the story. I remember, you know, there are things that definitely could have put me in in juvie when I was little. You know, I had a friend that had a compound bow and I was mad at him and Mm -hmm. and I decided to shoot an arrow near him. Uh Now, my error was I'm not going to miss. It flew right by his head. I could have killed that kid. 
easily. Yeah. And I realized that after I did it, oh, I can't just decide where this arrow is going to go. I might miss. But I had all the confidence in the world that that was going to be just fine. The world doesn't, they're going to say, well, you have a problem. That's why you did that. But it was just because, man, I, I just was developing. And physically, your brain is still developing. So sure. empathy hasn't always kicked in yet. Yeah. The way this was constructed, it tapped into that misunderstanding of the world so that you didn't know for sure what was going on. No. Their, yeah, yeah. their parents told them that amputating that leg saved their uncle's life and that's the knowledge they had to go on. And if you think about when you're a kid, all this medicine stuff is really confusing. If you go to the doctor, the doctor stabs you. Sure. That's why kids need to get that lollipop so they feel better about getting stabbed. Sure. Why are you taking me here for this to happen? So it's a horror show to get any kind of medical treatment. The pediatrician is a scary person who does scary things and they tell you that's good for you. So mm -hmm. you really might have a misunderstanding. And then also this ending was odd. The, the things the mother says, she goes, tell me, are you alive? Was it you who were run over? Yes, mother. Me too, said the brother, right over. Why does she ask if they're alive? Curious to me. I've got some ideas about it, but I'm not 100% confident. Is that for her, she thought her kids were going to die and she comes in and there's a bloodbath in the kitchen. Yeah. Her sanity is challenged at this point. I think, right. you know, like she's like, what the, what is going on? I don't understand. There's a dead kid outside and my kids are, am I looking at ghosts? Is that what's happening here? Yeah, she's questioning her sanity. And then, you know, she even says, were you run over in here? It, it's an odd thing to say. It, it, it feels real because say, you know, you thought someone got hurt and then they're there. Yeah. Are you real? Is this really happening? Anybody might say that. So it, it could just be a realistic depiction of that dialogue. But I felt like her reaction was also connected a bit to the premise of we're all just kind of trying to figure out what's going on sure. according to rules that we know. It says she washed them as white as angels and put them to bed as they had feared. Nevertheless, they were in the papers the next day. Yeah. Uh, washed them white as angels. There's this, we as adults are very confident about what we know about the world, but there's a lot of us walking around with some very weird ideas of how this all works that we're firmly committed to. You don't know how this all turned out. This is a story from the 50s. There was that horse and cart, so I thought maybe it was from an earlier time, although they do think that maybe this kid got hit by a car. But I just didn't know how are these children going to be dealt with. Yeah, I, that's a question I don't really understand about our society. That's something I haven't looked into. Like, what would happen if my kid killed another kid? I don't know. What goes on? Do child services come in and take them away? Or I'm not a psychiatrist. Or I don't know anything about this stuff. But to bring it back around to the movie Child's Play, <laughs> weirdly, <laughs> during the initial release of the movie, there was a bunch of protesters that formed at, the, at MGM calling for a ban on the, that film because they thought it would incite violence in children. And I think these people were worried that as parents are when they're worried about media, is this going to give my kids an understanding of the world that's not correct? Mm. Uh, is this casual violence in here going to make my kids think that that stuff's okay? And this went along with that film series, accusations of inciting violence in children. Child's Play 3 was cited as the inspiration for two murders, which took place in the UK in December 92 and February 93, the murder of Suzanne Capper and the murder of James Bulger. In the Suzanne Capper case, the 16-year-old was forced to listen to recordings of the gang leader repeating the catchphrase, I'm Chucky, wanna play? Whoa. Tom Holland, in response to those murders said, viewers of horror movies could only be influenced by their content if they're unbalanced to begin with. So he's coming down on that sure. side of it, which probably anybody well, would yeah. if you were the creator of... Well, obviously, you know, millions of people have seen those movies and they're not all killing people. Not even not even 10% of them are killing people. Well, wait till you see my movie Child's Play World. <laughs> you're going to find... Well, no, yeah. yeah I, 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 you're, you're correct, yeah. 
I feel like this might be the darkest show we've ever done. We, we still had some laughs, though. We had a couple of laughs in there to try and, you know, lighten things up. Even with our existential horror, there is a bit of detachment from it. And these things yeah. that we're talking about this story are very close to home in a number of ways. They are. And yeah. it is really unsettling and truly frightening in a way that we often don't deal with on the show. Yeah, and and if you take even if obviously because it's about kids, but even if you take that angle out of it, just knowing there are people who are sure of some of the knowledge they have yeah. and they they can kill you with that confidence. Fortunately, next week we're going to cover another story from Ramsey Campbell's collection. This one is not as upsetting as this one, but it's still kind of upsetting. Yes, it's called Lost Memory. It's a science fiction horror story. I really enjoyed it. It's by yeah. an author called Peter Phillips, uh, but it actually is is thematically very similar to this, it where is. it's horror predicated on a simple misunderstanding. So I think it's going to connect really well. But it is more fun because it's got, you know, robots and words like roll in it, and, <laughs> you know, sci-fi nonsense. <laughs> well, uh, I want to thank our reader. Yes, Chad Fest. Thank you for making your debut on the show. Excellent as I knew you would be. I hope we can have him back again. And just to mention real quick, the other stories that we're going to cover for the rest of the month, we're going to do a story called The Horror at Chilton Castle, mm -hmm. which is a little more classic type of thing that we do yep. by Joseph Payne Brennan. And then we're going to close out with a story called The Necromancer, which is very old, and it's by an author named Arthur Gray. Yeah. Next week, Lost Memory, will be talking more about this assumptions and how they can hurt us. And that's all we've got for this week. I'm Chris Lackey. I'm Chad Pfeiffer. And you've been listening to Strange Studies of Strange Stories. And for a few weeks more, the H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast here at HPPodcraft.com. 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 <laughs>